Hi, this is David Bedford, author of Liddypool and the Fab 104, and you're listening to the fascinating Fab 4 Free For All. And welcome to another edition of the Fab 4 Free For All. A weekly talk show on the internet. Weekly? Uh, Time out. That's W-E-A-K-L-E. Well, we we are a weekly podcast where we talk about the Beatles and the solo Beatles stuff and other things connected to it. And our guest today is someone we've... Why don't you say who you are? Oh, I shouldn't mention. That's right. You really did forget forget, everything. I I forgot everything. I am your moderator for today, Rob Leonard, and joining me, of course, are my two co-hosts and friends, Tony Treguardo. Hello, folks. And Mitch Axelrod. Hello. And today we are going to talk about Liverpool, or as the book is called, Liddypool. And joining us is the author of Liddypool, David Bedford. David, welcome to the Fab Four Free For All. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. And speaking of waiting, we actually met David back at the Abbey Road on the River back in, was it 2010? I believe it was 10, because yeah. this book came out in 2009, I believe. Right, yeah. and... Um, we met in Washington, 2010. Yeah, in yeah. Washington, D.C., and... We loved the book, and because of the time difference, really, we it's been really tough to set up a, a time to do the interview. People don't realize it's actually a six-year time difference between <laughs> here and England. Yes, we, and, is... and we are bad at math. So. <laughs> and, and we, we haven't done a lot of... still stuck in the 60s anyway, aren't you? So. <laughs> LDS. Truth, too much right? LDS. Too much LDS in the 60s. And, you know, unfortunately, we do a lot of recording now later in the evening and yeah. you know England's five hours away where David is is five hours away so to call him at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning it might have been a very fun interview <laughs> Maybe really we might have missed some great opportunities there <laughs> so it's finally it's great to finally get David on our show absolutely and and we should say by the way that his football team is Liverpool okay so uh, you just got it right well done just that, just that, that's soccer football not the other stuff you have. We call it soccer here. <laughs> that other stuff yeah. we have. I love it. <laughs> Which is really just a bunch of people beating the hell out of each other is really what it comes Wait, down to. It's like our game of rugby. Exactly. Except, um, our rugby players don't wear makeup and shoulder pads. Makeup. Wow. Oh. Makeup. Oh, a timeout. Geez. Well, that's been a fun interview with David Bedford. We'll see you next time on the Fab Four. <laughs> David, we just had the Super Bowl last week. 150 million people watched it. But how many of them were hardcore Beatle fans? Let's be really upfront uh, and honest. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about Liverpool and what's in Liverpool. Of course, the Beatles come from Liverpool, but a lot of things have changed in Liverpool over the years. Uh, some for the good, some of the bad. Some of it is in the book, and some of it is actually on- ongoing. So I, I actually, before we start, I just want to ask, what's happening with Ringo's house? The one he grew up with, because there were reports they were going to knock it down, and then... I just read it's not being knocked down. So let's start off there. Right, well, it, the houses in, in all the streets around Madrin Street where Ringo was born, um, all the residents were moved out about 10 years ago, and there was a plan to knock all the houses in about seven or eight streets down and build new houses, and that wouldn't be included, Ringo's birthplace. So myself and three friends got together, and we set up a campaign to save Madrin Street, and we got a lot of interest in that, and... It's gone backwards and forwards to, yes, it's going to be knocked down. No, it's not. And we ended up, last summer, I appeared at a, a government inquiry on behalf of Beatles fans to put the case for why we should keep Ringo's birthplace. And we have received the assurances that they will not knock it down. It will be saved. And hopefully, 
plenty of the houses around it so that fans, when they come to Liverpool, can actually see this was the house where he was born, this is what it was like. Is this something that could be taken care of by the National <laughs> Trust? No. The National Trust, they, they bought Paul McCartney's house in Fortham Road, but even when Mendips came on the market, the National Trust weren't interested in buying that. They said they've got one Beetle house, that's all they needed. So it was actually Yoko bought Mendips and gave that then to the people of Liverpool and the National Trust to look after. So if Yoko so, hadn't done that, someone else would own it right now? Yeah, it was just going on the open market. So David, has Ringo um, himself expressed any interest in being any part of this? I know that Ringo has sort of an, I don't want to say an on-again, off-again relationship with Liverpool, but that's that's sort of the impression that you get sometimes in a way. Oh, we'll get it, to it is a bit like that. From his point of view, the house that he remembers is 10 Admiral Grove, which is where he lived from at the age of five. So he's got very few memories of Madrin Street itself. Right. But he was saying there was a plan somewhere. Somebody said they would take down the house brick by brick and put it in a museum somewhere. And he said, well, that's just stupid because... <laughs> If you want context, the whole thing is it's the house in that position, in yeah. that area. Sure. There's no point demolishing it and doing that with it. Um, yeah. So he was supportive without getting too much involved. Uh, you know, I don't want to go to, let's say, Los Angeles and see Ringo's house in a museum in Los Angeles. Exactly. I want to yeah. be in Liverpool where you know it was. But I wanted to just start maybe getting into the book by something you said. You said, in order to understand the Beatles, you have to understand Liverpool. Yeah. So, why don't you take us back to Liverpool pre-Beatles? Does that mean you have to actually understand Liverpudlian also, or just Liverpool? Well, sorry, then I'm, I'm not kidding. ever just going kidding. to understand no, the Beatles. Um, <laughs> but if you can, I mean... I'll talk slowly. Please. Wait, time out. We're New Yorkers. Like, we talk you know, really. slow. But, but I will say one thing. You know, you are Liverpudlian. You are from Liverpool. So... I wanted to talk about the quote you said, and then also, to follow up on that, you had said that a lot of Beatle authors have written about Liverpool, and they're not from Liverpool, so they sometimes misrepresent. So since you're Liverpudlian, can you talk about the two things that, you know, in order to understand the Beatles, and also your relationship with Liverpool? Absolutely. I grew up in the Dingle, where Ringo's from, so getting involved in that campaign was personal for me, as well as... Uh, as a Beatles fan, because literally, as you get to the bottom of Madrin Street, uh, there's a, a street that goes along there called South Street. Or my back gate of my house comes out on South Street just at the bottom of Madrin Street. And I went to St. Silas School, which is the same school that Ringo had gone to. So I lived around there. Uh, even when I first got married, we lived just two streets away from Admiral Grove. Wow. So there's a lot of personal attachment to the Dingle. And then we then moved out to the house where we live now, just off Penny Lane. And we've got three daughters. They all went to Dovedale School, which is where John and George both went. So really, my whole life, I've had the Beatles all around me. But to, to get onto the quote, as you say, to understand the Beatles, you have to understand Liverpool. It's because the Beatles could only have come from Liverpool to make that mix. Because we're such... In some ways, I think there's a lot of similarities with New York. I often say I, I never understood why John would want to go and live in New York until I went to New York for the first time. Then I got it straight away. When did you come to New York, by the way, the first time? First time I came over for um, uh, Charles Rose, and he was doing a Beat Expo up in Stanford. Yeah. 
So I, I came through that and came down just for a day, just to wander around New York, and I, I was just, I was amazed. Um, what about I it? I really understood what John what about when it? came to New York. But what about New York connected you to Liverpool? What, what are the similarities? For me, New York is like Liverpool on steroids. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the same kind of thing, but just bigger. Cosmopolitan mix on the river, a lot of immigrants that have made up a fantastic community. And it's, I think that there's always that affinity with the water. Mm. It's, it's something Liverpoolians say. You, know, you can't imagine living somewhere where the water's not there. Everything comes back to, to the river because our whole lifeblood is, is on the River Mersey. And we've grown as a port. And we've got so many different nationalities represented in Liverpool who've all sort of got on together for hundreds of years. I mean, it's that unique mix which makes up Liverpool, which I think makes up New York as well. I get that same feeling when I go there. It's almost like being at home. You know, David, I said the same thing after I got back from Liverpool when I went a couple of years ago and I met you yeah. there. And I felt that Liverpool and New York are very much together. Uh, yeah. The people are very friendly. They're outgoing. They, they'll talk to you. And, and, and yes. anyone knows oh, yeah. in New York, people are... Uh, there's no shortage of opinions in New York. And it, I felt that yeah. way in Liverpool also. Exactly, and it was it was a great feeling actually because I remember talking to this cab driver who took me to the train station when I left, and the yeah. guy was just asking me so much about New York, and he was asking me about hockey for some reason. If I felt like I was in a New York City cab, except for the the accent, so uh, yeah, I was, I was very impressed. So much in common. Yeah, I can I can I, I can see why John uh, adopted to New York as well as he did. Yeah. yeah. You know, Absolutely. You know, David, my own personal little story, when I first came over in 1996 to interview people for my book in London, I went, obviously, to Liverpool for a couple of days, and it was when the coach of the football team had passed away uh, of oh, Liverpool. Yeah. I think that was 96. And I went to the cavern, and everybody in the cavern was crying and singing You'll Never Walk Alone, which I guess yeah. is the, the song for the Liverpool club. You know, they asked me, are you from New York? I guess they could tell by the accent. <laughs> and we all just drank and drank and drank. And then they took us, my friend and I went together. And honestly, they just took us under their wing and we all cried. And, and we, I didn't even know, you know, the football yeah. club coach. And I literally would felt like I was a, a Liverpoolian. It was great. See, it was just very welcoming and warming. See, for me, I would... exactly what, what we're like as a city. It, it's strange because we, we think of ourselves... Liverpoolians first, British second, mm. and if we had to, we'd quite happily be an independent country. <laughs> in which the borders are open, you're welcome to come, and if you come, you know, as, as a friend, wonderful, you're most welcome. But if anybody criticises Liverpool, we put the shutters up. <laughs> really? And yeah, yeah. It's a very parochial thing. Every now and because there's a lot of bias in the media over here because it's centred in London. There's been a lot of anti-Liverpool publicity over the years. And what? at times, we just shut it off. Talking of football, there was um, a football disaster in 1989 where 96 Liverpool football supporters lost their life at a game. And it's, it's taken, well, we're into the 27th year now. It's finally being sorted with a, a massive inquiry. Wow. And there's all kinds of lies were put out in one of the national newspapers the, the biggest selling national newspaper. And they put these lies on the front cover. And so Liverpool people said, we're not going to buy that paper anymore. 
And since that day, nobody, or virtually nobody in Liverpool has bought that newspaper. And it's cost them millions of pounds. Wow. Because you attack Liverpool, then we'll, we'll just repel you. Wow. But if you come with open arms, you'll be the most welcome person on the planet. Do you think that, in a way, um, David, that it's, is it some kind of a, uh, like a Beatles backlash, almost? I mean, do you think it had to do with the fact that, you know, it was always, you know, for those number of years that it was Liverpool, 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 and it wasn't yeah, London? I don't think that South ever got over that, because they thought everything revolved around London, which is why, you know, A&R people never came to Liverpool. Right. You know, they think, well, if they can't come to, to London, then... We don't need to know anything about them. And it's why the Beatles had to move to London in 63, because the media and everything was centered there. Well, let's get into that. Uh, what was the music scene like in Liverpool pre-Beatles? It was incredible because there was a much bigger music scene here than there was in London. London had places like the, the famous Two Eyes Club and a few other coffee bars. But apart from that, it was mainly um, theatres, things like that, variety. There wasn't much going on. Up here, with a much smaller population, once Skiffle took over in 56, there were hundreds and hundreds of groups and hundreds of venues. So you could find in you know, little town halls, church halls, wherever, there would be bands playing. And it was an amazing scene, which was, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the country. And then, all, of course, all the Skiffle then turned to, to rock and roll. And we were, in a way sort of a few years ahead of what London was doing. Even though London is massively bigger. Was the scene here was much bigger. Was London probably at that point, David, a little more focused? Was the blues scene happening yet there, or did that was that something that came you know, in? They, the, um, still very much the jazz scene. Trad jazz, um, right. As there was with, with the cabin up here. One of the interesting things, when I was uh, researching for the second book, the Fab 104, I was, I was looking at the music scene and, you know, what was happening in the country at the time. And I found out that in somewhere around, I think it's 1933, the Musicians' Union of Great Britain put a ban on any American jazz musicians coming over here. Wow. And the, the reason was, because with the other silent movies, you had musicians playing along. Once the talking movies arrived, there were all these musicians out of work. So they put this ban on American jazz musicians ever coming over here. Hmm. So all the jazz clubs were only full of British jazz musicians, but the band did not apply to blues, rhythm and blues, gospel, or rock and roll. And the band was only lifted in the late 50s. Wow. So that sort of affected, there was a big jazz scene that was tailing off. And that's why by the beginning of 1960, the cabin audiences were down to two or three dozen at the most. Wow. Because jazz was dying off. Right. Uh, and beat music around. The cavern that's there right now, uh, we should say, is not the original cavern, but it's literally next door. How close to it is it to the original? Even the, the new version that's there doesn't come across as the safest place in the world. When I went there in, uh, in 2014, it was, it was really basically one way in and one way out. Uh, it's a little bit deeper, but is it close to way, or the original floor plans were, and I know they use a lot of the same brick, uh, but how it's close on, is it? It's on half of the original site. Oh, it is? So it, it, it's actually in, in the right location. And one of the funny things they found just by accident was, even though you may not have felt too safe, there are a few emergency exits which weren't there in the original cabin. 
and the the fire exit for this new cavern where you come out the door there is exactly where the entrance was for the original cavern wow, oh, wow. Oh, so, I know so do people actually go out the exit just to take a picture <laughs> of them going in the original, or do they not know that? Well, no, because on the outside of the door, they've um, they put the story on there with a full-size picture of Paddy Delaney, who's the cabin doorman. Oh, jeez. And the story of how they proved through a photograph Bob Waller had taken looking out of the entrance into Matthew Street. You can see from the building across the way exactly where the entrance was. So you That's can have your picture taken by Paddy Delaney. Ah, that's great because opportunity. a lot of the a lot of the books and magazines seem to give the same impression that that you know had reflected that it really is not on the exact same site. We yeah. were reading for years that oh it had been moved and it, so it, it was is, very it close, nice but hear. it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, it overlaps, which I didn't yes, know. Yeah, that's don't, great. Do not give the names of those magazines, or else all the people of Liverpool will never buy those. <laughs> that's right. Good point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have Liverpoolians who used to go to the cavern will swear blind that it's in a different site. Really? That's funny. But I, I sat down with Dave Jones, who's one of the directors of the cabin, and he's got the original plans. And, and we, we actually looked over and saw exactly where they were now compared to the original one. And it, it is, it's on about 50% of the original site. That's cool. Well, can, uh, let me ask you a question, because your book came out in 2009. Yeah. Uh, you're from Liverpool, and I did, at the top of the... Discussion, talk about other authors who have represented Liverpool. I hope you don't mind me asking this, but I have to. What is your relationship with Mark Lewison? Oh, with Mark? Oh, get on really well with Mark. Okay. Yeah, but because get on very, very well with Mark. He's, he's a great historian. Sorry. He's also been very complimentary about my books as well. Because I know he's obviously tuned in volume one, talks yep. all about Liverpool. Absolutely, yeah. Is, yep. there, yeah. is there anything that you totally maybe do not agree with or did you guys confer when he wrote his book? Um, I think when Liverpool came out, you know, it, he loved it and I think that possibly helped shape what he was going to do with the early part of Tune In. Because up until that point, the, the whole reason for writing Liverpool was because I got so frustrated with reading other Beatles books and they were getting stuff so wrong about the city. I just started, and it was just going to be this, this simple little book with a, a few photos in it. It became a nine-year project. Wow. It just took over my life. Because I wanted Beatles fans to know the real Liverpool. I think Mark's done a fantastic job with tuning in for someone who, although he's not from Liverpool, he spent so much time here over the years, and he's got to know so many of us up here. He, he's got a real good feel for the city, and he's done. I think he did a fantastic job for someone who's not a Liverpoolian. Well, he's he been reading all the job. he's been reading all the Liverpool echoes. I mean, he's been going down <laughs> to read those. We know that, and he's been at the grapes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, let's say you weren't from L Liverpool. How do you think this book, your book, would have been different? And you said you grew up in Liverpool. It, it also seems as trying to find some of your history as well as through the Beatles. Is uh, is that a good uh, line to say? That's really what, what I wanted to put across. The whole idea was it was going to be a simple little guidebook just to say, this is what the city is like. And, you know, Ringo said some, some disparaging things about the Dingle. And, yeah, it was a tough area to live in. But it, it's amazing, particularly when I talk to um, a lot of the American Beatles fans, when they come over here and say, what did you actually expect from Liverpool? 
And the majority would say, bit of a dirty, grimy industrial port. And then, mm. you know, you get on the bus sure. or in the car, and within like 15 minutes, you're going through Sefton Park, this beautiful, you know, public parks, trees everywhere. And they're, they're genuinely stunned at how beautiful the city is. And like most Liverpoolians, I'm, I'm fiercely proud of the city. And I wanted Beatles fans to see the real Liverpool. And part of that reason is because Brian Epstein being a very, very good salesman, he wanted to package the Fab Four as these four tough working class lads from this industrial city who've had a hard time. And in some ways, I almost apologise that Liverpool actually is in full colour, not just in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I asked about Mark Lewison for a reason. And again, I don't want to be controversial at all, but you talked about some rumours. And we should say that the foreword of your book is written by Pete Best. And I'm sure you have a great relationship with Pete. He's he's still from the city. And Pete has never been anything but gracious to us. No, Uh, So, you know, we're not judging at all. But you had said one of the rumors was about Pete Best sacking. And Mark Lewison, in his book, had said that Pete knows pretty much, I'm going to be a New Yorker and say damn well, why he was sacked. So how does that, you know, sit with you? Because Mark obviously has a different opinion than you. Interestingly, I'm just finishing off my third book at the moment, and each book sort of follows from the other. So, you know, Liverpool started and did all the Liverpool scene, and there was the one chapter in that which um, I called the Fab 27, which was all the musicians who played in the group from the Quarrymen through to the Beatles. There was so much interest in that chapter, I expanded that to be the Fab 104, which is every musician, but I've also found the people who taught the Beatles to play or who played on stage with them in that same period up to the end of 62. So there's 104 people. Wow. From that, um, a friend of mine said, you know, when you've gone through all those musicians, I'd never realized how many drummers there were in the group. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so the book, just finishing at the moment, is called Looking for the Fourth Beatle. The Fourth Beatle? The Fourth Beatle. <laughs> we're always talking about the Fifth Beatle, yeah. and you're looking exactly. for the Fourth Beatle. The fourth Beatle, and all the drummers. It's like Spinal Tap. Three of John, Paul, and George. Yeah, wow. And we've got 15 drummers. Are 14 of them Paul McCartney? <laughs> yeah, Paul has the feature, of course. <laughs> he gets a mention. Um, but excluding John, Paul, George, right. we've, got, we've got 15 drummers. Wow. Um, one guy who's nobody ever has ever interviewed or talked about. One guy who will probably come to you as a, a big surprise. And so, as part of that, it's, I've uh, interviewed uh, Tommy Moore's family for the first time. Wow. So, it was the first time I got a really full uh, biography of Tommy Moore, who was the drummer in 1960. Um, <clears throat> so, that, that's been fascinating. But, obviously, when we're talking about the drummers, we come on to the subject of, of Pete Best and a Ringo. And, in the course of the investigation, we've come across... Something very, very interesting, which I won't spoil the surprise yet, because the, the book is going to be launched at the, uh, the Fest for Beatles fans in April. Great. Oh, wow. Okay. But it's, it puts a completely different spin and different take on the Pete Best affair. Have you spoken to Mark about this surprise? No. 
Okay. okay. Well, he doesn't want to tell him. Then he's well, no, no, no. But, well, no, Mark wouldn't give away secrets. Well, if, if, Mark's I, good that way. if I mean, I, I don't want David to give any secrets away either, but I've always tossed out the speculation, and David, you could say, you know, just say, nope. But <laughs> no, I always have tossed out the speculation that it had something to do with maybe Brian being uncomfortable about the whole Neil Mona scenario and that that contributed. Um, that's been suggested by a number of people and. I, that, that might have come in as a factor. Okay. Yeah, because um, it always struck me that... We should say, for those who don't know, Neil Aspinall and Mona had a child. Right, Rogue. Uh, Rogue. Uh, Great some people guy. don't know that. We've met Rogue. Nice yeah. Guy. He happens, yeah, he's, he's a, a he, he guy can, we can drink with. Yes. He, and he can out drink oh, yeah. all three of us. <laughs> and and, and, and is, we might add, is pretty much, I mean, I, d- David, correct me if I'm wrong, he's sort of the caretaker of the Casbah, right, for the most part? Yeah, yeah, and Rogue. he's Pete's manager, and yeah. he drums in the band with Pete as yep. well. And he's a good dude. In Liverpool, there's, there's certain parts of Liverpool that still have the argument, you know, that Pete... And Ringo, who is the better drummer in the Beatles? Is that still an ongoing thing, or is that finally quieted down? We've always heard that if you, you know, there are certain pubs you might walk into, and if you bring that up, you're not leaving until Pete the, forever, Ringo never. Yeah, that type of thing. Is that still uh, a good pub conversation in, in Liverpool? Oh yeah, you, you can still guarantee that, as you said before. You know, Liverpoolians are never short of an opinion, <laughs> um, and it is an interesting one. And I think one of the things how I feel what's coming through with, with this latest book is I say it's the vindication of Pete Best and the celebration of Ringo Starr wow that's, Interesting. that's great that's cool well, you know one thing we, talk, we were talking about our personal experiences over in Liverpool but this kind of combines with what you with the expectations I went over in the um, uh, first time in 90 and one thing that I was hearing was that the Beatles were sort of forgotten I was hearing over here well the Beatles in Liverpool eh, you know, they, nobody cares over there anymore and this uh, is 1990. One, yeah, there, there was definitely a period, because you, you have to remember that the Beatles left Liverpool in 63, and the last time they played here was December 65. Right. And it was another, another few years before they split up, and then they went off and were doing their solo careers. But at that time, from mid to late 60s, there really was a decline uh, in Liverpool. There was a lot of unemployment. Lots of jobs were lost on the docks. Right. And so, almost like a depression. It, it was devastating over here. There were, there were street riots back in 1981, uh, particularly around the Dingle area where, where I was living. Yeah. It just meant that, yeah, the, the Beatles were yesterday's news. We had to worry about the city at the time and, and what we were going to do. But, of course, then everything changed when, uh, when John was murdered. Yeah. And Beatles fans wanted to come to Liverpool and see the, the cavern, which, of course, wasn't there. They wanted to see where John had lived, where he walked, and there was nothing organized here. So really, the change in the Beatles' emphasis in Liverpool actually occurred because John was killed. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, it, for me, it was it was unusual because when I arrived, I, it was a very strange... I, I was carrying a whole ton of video equipment with me. I was only going to be there for like seven hours, but I was going to go to Strawberry Fields. I was going to, I was working for Panasonic. I had this whole yeah. rig with me and I was lost. 
I mean, I didn't know where I was going. And I see these these two kids, you know, one of with his leathers on, and all I could flash back to was like the tough street kids of Liverpool. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get rolled. You know, first thought, I, you know, here I am a New Yorker of all things, and I'm thinking I'm going to get mugged by these two 14 year olds in Liverpool. But the funny, yeah, you know, right. But the funny part of it was one of the kids walked over and said, you know, can we help you, mate? And I said, I said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. That's cool. I'm good. And the other one said, no, you're not. You're lost. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. He said, no, you're one of those Beatle people and you're lost. <laughs> and, and I said, what am I wearing it like on my forehead? It, well, but what the funny part of it was, was here were these two kids, like 14 in 1990. Yep. And they said, what are you looking for? I said, Walton Village Church. And one of them said, oh, well, that's my parish. I'll walk you up. And the, these two kids walked me up there. They brought me to Eleanor's gravesite, which in 1990 was mind-blowing. Yes. You know, but they were the absolute nice kids. One of them says, oh, you know, I don't know if it was his mom or his aunt. He says, oh, I, I thought I was going to miss my train. And to me, this is Liverpool. I think I'm going to miss my train and go back to London, you know, where my hotel is. And he says, well, don't worry. If you miss your train, you can come back and stay with us. Honest to God. And I and I said, he said, oh, because my mom's going to keep you up talking about all her time she spent with Richie. Yeah. And I said, Richie who? And she said, Richie. And I said, no, come on now, Richie? Oh, yeah, she's got photos and blah, 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 blah. I mean, totally freaked me out. I ended up making my train, and actually I wished I had missed it. But, yeah. you know, with that in mind. But, I mean, it was really just an amazing experience, just the openness. And, you know, I get, and they saw I was there to be part of, as you said, would you there with open arms. Yeah. And it was just a really amazing experience. And I went back years later and loved it. But anyway. Anyway, we're going to come back again because it's changed so much. Absolutely. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, you're listening to the Fab Four Free For All, and we're talking about Liverpool with David Bedford. We'll be back right after this. Hi, folks. This is Tony from Fab Four Free For All. As Mitch has mentioned several times, the cast of Fab Four Free For All do not profit in any way doing these shows for all of you. In fact, we actually lose money because of studio time and other production expenses. Now, we have looked into show sponsors, but for a number of reasons, we've decided it would be in the best interest of all of us, including you, our listeners, not to have sponsored ads in our shows. So, what we've done is set up a Patreon account. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows artists to obtain funding from patrons on a recurring basis. Now, it can be as little or as much as you think you can send to us for the work that we put into providing quality Fab Four free-for-all shows. Now, we know that we have thousands of worldwide listeners, and if each of you just contributed a dollar a month, that's just 25 cents per episode, we would have enough to retire and not have to do these shows. <laughs> Sorry. Seriously, though, we've gotten some great feedback from everyone about how much these shows mean to you, and we feel the same way. But it would be nice if we could break even in terms of costs so that we can continue to bring these shows to you in a timely fashion. Yeah, I know, we can be delayed every once in a while, but that's because, as John Lennon so beautifully said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But we do vow to make every effort to have a quality show to you every week. We only ask that everyone go and visit Patreon.com to at least check out what it's all about and to see if you can contribute a little something in return for all the hard work and effort that we put into these shows for you. Just do a search for Fab Four Free For All, and tell us that you give a buck about what we do. Thanks to all of you for being such great loyal listeners. 
And we're back on the Fab Four free-for-all. I'm your moderator, Rob Leonard, and, of course, with Mitch Axelrod and Tony Chiguardo. I'm still here. I know. Me too. Okay. David Bedford is our guest today. He is the author of Liddy Pool, The Birthplace of the Beatles, a fantastic book about doesn't just have maps of Liverpool and where to go. And it gives history and pictures of the buildings that, uh, that were there at the time. Many of them are not there anymore. Uh, but I just wanted to bring up an article that was in... Um, on the BBC on February 12th, which is actually yesterday as we record this, it said 46 years after they split, the Beatles are responsible for one in every 100 jobs in their home city of Liverpool. That's pretty damn, yep. pretty damn good. That was one of the standout statistics of the group's financial legacy released in a report this week. BBC News looked at the numbers. They bring in 82 million pounds a year and... One to two million visitors a year said that the reason they visited Liverpool was for the Beatles. Well, That's yeah. a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot. Now, before the break, you were, you were talking about people started to come to Liverpool, but there was nothing to see. When did Liverpool, the city council, realize, you know, we got to start saving some of these buildings and, and make this maybe a, a destination for Beatle fans and, and tourists? When did that start kicking in? I still don't think they fully got the idea. Um, I think this report has helped because it's a very conservative estimate to say they're worth 82 million. Wow. It's a very good report. And I think it backs up what the city's doing, but it it took a while. And a lot of things happened, like the the guys who got the cabin rebuilt, then got the cabin city tours, Bill Heckle, Dave Jones. Now, those guys did all of that without any support from the local government. You've got like Mike Byrne and his wife Bernie who started first Beatles City and then the Beatles story. Again, they did that with any, without any assistance, really. And numbers-wise, the Beatles story last year had a quarter of a million visitors. Which is, is, is amazing because when I went to Liverpool in 96, I found the Beatles story very underwhelming. Now, I know it's changed since then. It changed a lot. But I, I found it almost too touristy, if that, if that makes sense. Uh, maybe yeah, they've done a lot of work. It's a fantastic exhibit now. It now, really is. They've, they've expanded it within the Albert Dock complex where it is now. And even there's a, a second part of it by uh, the pier head where the ferry terminal is. Yeah. They've got so much stuff there. Well, you know, let me, let me get back a little to, you said the, the Cavern City Tours. I remember going on the Replica Magical Mystery Tour bus with Eddie, yeah. the tour guide. Um, Eddie Porter. Yeah, yeah, Eddie Porter. And if I would have gone and not had a structured tour like that, I would have been like Tony was, totally lost. Yeah. But we had planned for it. You know, we got into Lime Street Station. We then went to the Cavern City Tours, and we got on the bus, which we thought was incredible. You know, there are certain places where, obviously, they don't take you. But I will say, you know, we talked about Mona Best before, and in your book, going way back, you talk about the importance of Mona Best and the Casbah uh, in regards to the Beatles and Liverpool. So can you just give a little background on the Casbah? Because most people just think, oh, Liverpool. They go it, right to the cavern. Right, right, right to away. the cavern. Yeah. And you know what? I think it deserves a mention. It's probably when I was doing my research, it was the biggest shock to me because even as a Beatles fan, I knew virtually nothing about the Casbah, and it's about two or three miles from my house. 
And I read the book that uh, the three best brothers, Pete, Rory, and Rogue, had written called The True Beginnings. And I read through and thought, nah, I saw this. How can that be the birthplace of the Beatles? And they're claiming all this stuff, and I thought, this has got to be wrong. It's another one of these books where people are making stuff up. Start doing research and suddenly realize what they were saying was true. And it's because of the connection, because of Mo and the Best and the son Pete being involved with it, it's sort of been airbrushed out of Beatle history. Because if you talk about the Casbah, you have to talk about Pete. Right. And then you, you have to talk right. about Mona. Yeah, you bring and up that. I didn't really want to do that, particularly because Pete was kicked out of the group and everything. And what I found was that it was one of the very first rock and roll clubs in Liverpool. And because people know the Cavern as the famous one, John got it right by saying the Beatles made the Cavern, the Cavern did not make the Beatles. So the Cavern was a, a jazz club, and it was only, I think, May 1960 was the first beat night at the Cavern. But in August 1959, Mona Best had the Casbah Club, and the opening group were the quarrymen of John Paul George and a guy called Ken Brown. And that became the first proper rock and roll club in Liverpool. And it had this membership. It ended up with thousands. And all the best groups came to play at the Casbah. And what's significant about it is it's in the basement of Mona Best's house. But to get the club ready, they had John Paul and George helping out with the decorating. And it's unchanged. You can go there now. You can touch the ceiling. It's a huge ceiling, which John Lennon hand-painted. You can touch the, the ceiling that Paul painted. You can see the stars that they all contributed to. Wow. You can see where John's etched his name into the wood on the wall. You can see the piano that Paul McCartney played. So it's, it's real history, and this was all happening. It's, it's all there. Before they got to the cavern. Yeah, so this is really actually, you know, the cavern is the cavern. Yes, there's the same bricks. But yep. this is really the most authentic, probably, place the Beatles played, and still is to this day. Yep. I mean, the best preserved history. The best preserved, well, yeah. I, absolutely, there's no, no one like it. No pun intended. <laughs> you guys have shared some stories. I got to share one story. When when I went to Liverpool, I had the pleasure of having David Bedford drive me around, and you took me to a couple of places, David. Which ones did you take me to before we got to the Casbah? Do you remember? Which pub? Well, no, no, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, and leaving Lily out of the picture completely. <laughs> no, well, Just, we 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 had lunch, <laughs> and then uh, we we went driving, and and. David, want to make fun of an American right now? Please do. You do you remember what I okay, did? Who, who was driving at the time? You were driving. Do you remember what I did before mm -hmm. I got in the car? Okay. Do you do you tell all your British friends, your Liverpudlian friends, the stupid American did what? We went to the car to get in, and who decided to try and get into the right-hand drive driver's seat, Mr. Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Wasn't me. Uh, I'm standing at the side of the car, and I'm like, well, aren't you going to let me in? He goes... Well, I have to get in over there. You have to get in on the other side. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. I'll, I'll drive. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I've done, that. I've done that. I've actually looked the wrong way while cars are, you know, I'm looking as a You bump. only do that once. <laughs> oh, no yes. matter what. If you survive it, you only do it you, once. You if you learn, don't survive it, you only did it yeah, once. You, you so, learn very quickly. So David had a good laugh at my expense. But you took me to a couple of places. I, I want to say the, uh, the one place you took me, what was the name of the place again where the Beatles played for 17 fans? Was that one of the places you took me? It looks like a telephone company building now. The Locarno in the Grafton. Yes, yes, that was one of them. And then it gets to the point where I'd made an appointment for the Casbah at 4 o'clock. And yeah. I have no idea where we're driving. We're driving, and I go, you know, it's 3.50. I have to be at the Casbah at 4. He goes, 
okay. And he makes a left-hand turn, and literally... <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. And you've never been to Garden City out here on Long Island, but to me, these houses were huge. And, oh, yeah. And the Casbah house, where the Pete Best family lived, right. was a huge house. Huge backyard. You compare it to John or Paul's house, very small. Well, and, Peter's and, father was a successful boxer, well, right? Well, I mean, Mona was a, one got the house for money she bet on a horse. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. So, but the oh, thing that right. got me about the Casbah was it was literally a basement in a house. Yeah. And that's something you don't think about. You think of the name the Casbah, you think of a, it might be a bigger place or something. It is literally a small little basement. And there's a stage right there. Crammed in together. If they could fit two fifty, I'd be shocked. Well, how but, many people could you get into the cavern? Seriously. Yeah. The cavern, you probably get up to about five hundred. Oh, you could. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. It didn't seem like that when I was there. But I, I was amazed at the house, and and the other thing that I did think of, and we always talk about the separation of Pete and the other three, is that Pete lived kind of far away from the other three. Yeah. And none of them had cars back then. They would take the bus. To go to Pete's house, so you know that distance when you're young is is a lot bigger than you think, and that and that's something I always thought of when I when I went to the Casbah, how it was far away from where John and Paul's house was. It, it was, but in those days, you went everywhere by bus. I remember that you know the Quarrymen had been performing at places all over the city, uh, places like like Bulacano, that like the Grafton we went to, and further out again. And they were playing those back in 57, 58. So they were used to traveling anywhere on a bus. And in some ways, if you got to, to Penny Lane, which was you know the bus terminus where you changed, meet up there, get on the other bus to go up to West Derby, where the Casbar is, it's not too much different from getting the, the bus into town. Right. So they were used to going absolutely everywhere, either on your bike or on the bus. So wow. it, it wouldn't have bothered them at all. You said in the book that when the Beatles left Liverpool, Liverpoolians knew they were not coming back. Can you get yeah. into that? I mean, how? I mean, how did you know? I mean, I know they were off to bigger and better things, but they were still Liverpoolians, the Beatles. So why was that fact? I suppose it's one of those things of being a port city. You're used to people being here for a while, and then once they go, they may come back occasionally, but that's that day. And I think there was this feeling that all the fans had grown up with them as their group. You know, that they knew them personally. They'd go to all the different venues and watch them. But once they knew they were going to London, that meant, yeah, they had the recording contract. It meant television, it meant radio, it meant world tours, whatever. They would never be just Liverpool's group. And it comes back to that idea I was saying before about Liverpool being very parochial. And it's almost like a family and it's the, almost that stage where one of your kids has, has grown up and has left home and got married. Yeah. You know you'll still see them, but they've left the family home. And that's what the fans here felt. And they knew once they go, yeah, we'll see them occasionally, but that is it. They're gone. We also, for the sake of our listeners uh, all over the world, may want to just reflect the idea that, David, am I right? At that time, that was, what, a, a four-hour train ride to, to London from Liverpool? Oh, now yeah, it, but of yeah. course, most of the time, they'd have to drive, like Neil would drive his little van. Yeah, and it was... All the way down, and when he went down for the Decker audition, 1st of January, 62, that took Neil 11 hours. 
Yeah. So, you know, again, to just reflect the understanding to fans that that trip from Liverpool to London, that's not a quick ride. That wasn't something that you could say, oh, well, why couldn't they just do it on the week? You know, they could work in London on the week, during the week, come back home on the weekends. Didn't really work that way. So, no, you, you know. 230 miles away. Yeah. Well, they also um, didn't have the motor. Long train ride, no motorways. Yeah. They, and also, they have the speed trains now. So it yeah. takes, yeah, when I went from London to Liverpool, it was a nice two hour train ride. Right. Yes. Not then. You know, you're going 75 miles an hour. It's, it's beautiful. You forget. If you're not a world traveler like me, um, <laughs> wait, wait, time out. Can we take a break? Because I have to laugh. Sorry. Wow. No, the, the thing that got me was, you know, I'm, I'm passing by all these farms going from yeah. London to Liverpool, and I'm like, you don't think of farms in, in Great Britain for some reason. I, I know they're there, but you know, I never uh, thought of it. Have, have you world traveler, oh Robert, that you are? Have yes. you ever heard of sheep? I'm sorry. Wait, 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 I'm, wait, not, wait. I'm not that lonely. Wait, no, Come on. <laughs> Can I just no, say one I mean, thing? Like, really? You never think of have you, farms in England? I never thought what about it. What kind of... Never mind. I'm sorry, but when you said... David, you he's, heard of David Rob's out. You're in. So <laughs> you're, you're oh, the, you, you want to know why I wrote Liddypool? Thanks, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> you just answered everything. <laughs> You've just justified nine years of the man's life. Just we, 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 we're finally going to get a blurb. <laughs> Rob Leonard thinks there were no farms in Great Britain. Liddypool proves otherwise. <laughs> Rob Leonard, very sheepish. Oh, man. Oh, oh. Don't pull the wool over his eyes. Oh. Is that Bob Wooler? Oh. Hey. I'm at the bar. Uh, oh, nah. That was um, good. <laughs> I have to tell, I, I want to get back to the Beatles' relationship with Liverpool because, yeah. you know, we, you just talked about leaving. And we mentioned it earlier in the show that Ringo has had a contentious relationship with Liverpool now and then. Yeah. Uh, you know, he made a few remarks, but then he was asked to help out in 2008, I believe. Now, wait, yeah. knowing the whole rebellion thing, could that explain why Ringo's album didn't, the last album didn't sell very well? Did no one in Liverpool buy it? Yes, Was they were the, very... <laughs> well, time out. It had nothing to do with Liverpool very people. It just, nice. it just was Ringo's solo album. Um, anyway, he said a few things during the Liverpool 8 promotions. Then he was asked to come back and honor the city. Since then, every album has had some recollection of Liverpool in a, in a song. So what is Ringo's relationship with Liverpool and Liverpool's relationship with Ringo and the other Beatles? Obviously, George and John are gone, but and we know that Paul also... Well, Yoko has, obviously still has some relationship. Yes, but let, David, what what's all of the estates and Beatles' relationships right now with Liverpool? Okay, well, Ringo first. Um, he brought out his album... 2008, Liverpool 8, um, which tied in with the year of 2008 and the postcode, zip code of, of the Dingle where he grew up was Liverpool 8. That's what the area is known as. Um, and that's when he had started writing his songs about Liverpool, which had been great. And it's fascinating because with each of those songs, there's so much in there which, if you're not from Liverpool, does not make any sense. I think there's one line like in the other side of Liverpool where he says, I had to go to Stebble Street just to take a bath. Yeah, yeah. Now, that will mean nothing unless you understand what he was talking about, which was his house, for both Imagine Street and Admiral Grove, where he lived, had no bath in the house. There was no toilet in the house. 
The mm. toilet was in a small brick outhouse in the, the backyard. Your bath was either a tin bath used to hang on a big nail in the yard. You bring it in, put it in front of the fire, fill it up and take your bath. Or you went to a public bathhouse. His nearest one was in Stevel Street, which he mentions in the song. Wow. Swimming pools to us, we still call them swimming baths because there used to be one section which was just a, a series of cubicles with baths in and you pay a couple of pennies and they'd run your hot bath and then you'd have a swimming pool alongside as well. So when he's saying I had to go to Stevel Street just to take a bath, that was literally a walk of probably three quarters of a mile from his house. Wow. It was one of your options to go and get a hot bath. So is that why his albums stink? No, I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, is that why they kept the drum set so far away from the other guys? <laughs> I'm sorry. They don't stink. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. No. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so he, he came and he opened the celebrations because 2008 was, we were the European capital of culture, which was a very prestigious thing and has brought a lot of investment and a lot of positive media attention on the city. So that's been really, really good. And we're still feeling that effect now of more hotels, more visitors. We've got cruise liners coming back to the River Mersey, bringing thousands of people. So it's very, very positive. So Ringo started the celebrations and he brought out the record all at the same time. And that was all great. The problem was, after he'd launched everything in Liverpool, he went down to London promoting the album and he was on a television show. And the television host asked him if, he, if he'd ever go and live again in Liverpool. And instead of trying to be diplomatic, which McCartney would have been, <laughs> Ringo being Ringo, trying to make a joke, but it didn't work. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm back close to going back. <laughs> and the television host interviewed didn't know what to say. And his name was Mud from that day on. And that is one of the big problems in Liverpool. If somebody says something disparaging about the city, the chances are you never get forgiven. Even if you're um, a Beatle? What does Ringo uh, have to do to win back Liverpool? That's the question. I don't know. He's tried. He's been back on tour. He's apologized. He's tried to clarify what he was trying to say. But you can never really get that back. One of the things he did, there was out by one of the railway stations, Somebody had carved in like a, a topiary in, in the hedges, the four beetles. Somebody went along and chopped off Ringo's head. Ooh. Wow. Wow. Well, the problem was that when Ringo tried to apologize, what he did was he came on, he said, well, I wasn't saying whatever they were saying I was saying. It was wrong or it was taken wrong, and all, now it's all this. And they thought, now nah, that's not very sincere. It sounds just like John. But anyway. Yeah. It's sorry. been done. It's been done. It's been done before. Mm. Um, one well, thing. Wait, oh, well, hang on. Oh, he didn't, what's the other relationship? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, so the, the other ones. Um, well, John, once John had left and was settled in New York, obviously he had the green card problem. He kept in touch with his Liverpool family. And one of the great sadnesses was that he was talking to them and corresponding with them in 1980 because he was making his plans for 81, coming over to promote the new album. And he's going to be meeting up with all his family again because he'd missed Liverpool and his family. and. Of course, that, that never happened. But in her defence, Yoko has done a lot for Liverpool in, in John's memory. Personally, one of the, the first things that I wrote in, in the Beatles magazine was the story of Yoko donating a large sum of money to Dovedale School. And because I was involved in the school at the time, 
I wrote up the story in a, a Beatles fanzine for the British Beatles fan club. That was the first thing that I wrote, and that started me writing my stories. And Yoko's been over a number of times, given a lot of money to the city. She promotes it. She's uh, given Mendips. She's been over a number of times. We've renamed the airport, Liverpool John Lennon Airport. So Yoko's done a lot in John's memory. George, once he'd left, he kept in touch with a few of the family, but not much. He never really came back. So when there was a Victorian palm house in Sefton Park, which needed restoring, and so he got a checkbook out and he made a very large donation to help restore that. Obviously, he's a keen gardener. Right. But I'd say probably out of all of them, Paul is the one who's done more than any of the others for Liverpool and is still heavily involved. Like, he's got his uh, Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, right. which he set up, and that's expanding again, based in his old school. And it's now just taken over and is expanding into John's old art college, which was next door. Oh, wow. And Paul's heavily involved in that. Every year for the graduation ceremony, Paul comes back, hands out the certificates to the students. Mm, That's great. That's great. There's still a good relationship. And for the majority of Liverpoolians, the Beatles are remembered fondly and are celebrated. And I think the report we were talking about before has helped for what we've all been saying here. Saying, look, the Beatles are so valuable to this city. Tourism now is one of our biggest incomes. And it's on the back of the Beatles and what they did. So we should celebrate them. Also, you know, David, I mean, the thing about, obviously, Liverpool and, and the Beatles in the early story is that there are some other great names and great personalities. And and there, there are the folks who were unsung at the time. Like right now, you know, dear, dear Frida Kelly is out there. Mm-hmm plugging a, a really what, what we think is a wonderful film you had people like Bob Wooler who were important names did you have a relationship did you know Bob well you know no, when... I, I didn't sadly I didn't know him well at all but I was able to talk to a number of people who knew him well and he was so highly regarded in the city and still is you, know, you can talk to any of the former Mersey Beat band members everybody looked up to Bob you know, he, he was always there to help, to guide, whatever was needed. You know, he, he was a, a fantastic guy and doesn't get a lot of credit. And it's one of the sadnesses, in a way, of Brian's PR for the Fab Four. It was all about John Paul, George and Ringo and him as the manager. And anybody else before that was sort of cut out. In a way, what I've been doing for these like 15, 16 years trying to find all those other people who contributed to the story who should have their little part in uh, in history. So the editor of Mersey Beat and and Alan Williams and all the folks yep. who yeah were in in the very early the early years. And now uh, you obviously you know Frida, of course. Yeah. Have you been involved in any of the promotion for the film or do any of that over there? Or? I I think I've got two mentions in the credits of the film. Yeah. I was involved quite a bit, particularly in the Liverpool end of things, setting up some of the interviews, taking their, some of the film crew around as well, as well as talking to Frieda a number of times through it, and then helping with the uh, the promotion of the film. And it, it, it's an amazing story, yeah. and she's a reluctant hero. But even Frieda had to leave Liverpool to go to London. Well, no, she didn't. No? Because she said at one point it was just getting too much, so she... 
Oh, no, that's right. No, he she, wanted her right, to go to right, London, and right. she wouldn't. I'm that's sorry. Right. Every now and again, she would commute up and down. Yeah, okay, that's Myra. right. He she wanted her to relocate. If father didn't want her to go. Right, right, right. right, right. Myra, right. sorry. I, no, I, I know that. that at the fest a couple of years ago, uh, she was embraced wholeheartedly, and she was having yes. a lot of fun with the fans, and people were buying her drinks or whatever. She was just having a blast. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, David... And people don't realize this, and, and until you take the Magical Mystery Tour or just go near where John lived, is that Strawberry Field is literally around the corner. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, literally, John snuck into Strawberry Field from near his house, but the entrance is around the corner. What was Strawberry Field? At, you know, it's Strawberry Field, not Strawberry Fields. And uh, is it still what it was when John was a younger man? Or a kid, right, well, um, it started out, it was um, a large mansion on top of the hill. almost looked like a, a gothic mansion. John could see that from the back of Mendips looking up the hill. It's almost like looking at the house from Psycho. Mm. This huge <laughs> gothic mansion up on the hill and surrounded in these uh, the trees and grounds, etc. And back in 1936, the Salvation Army were handed the deeds to the house by the, the last lady who lived there. So they turned it into an orphanage, originally just for girls, and then sometime in the mid-50s, boys as well. So John could see it from the back of his house. And even though on any of the tours you you see the big red gate at the front of the entrance, that didn't mean as much to John. Because if you just go about 100 yards from the front door of Mendips, and you turn onto Vale Road, the original wall, which was the back boundary, of strawberry fields is still there. So what John and his friends would do would climb over that wall and go and play in the grounds. So for John, when you were the usual side of the wall, everything was real. Once you climbed on that wall and went over into the grounds, that's when nothing was real. It was his imaginary playground. But it was still private property. And they would occasionally get chased by the groundsmen. Hmm. But it, it was a magical place to go, which was literally just around the corner. And, and on Vale Road, where the, the, the back wall was, he had Ivan Vaughan, Nigel Wally, and Pete Shotton living just there. So they were the little group of friends who used to go and play in the grounds. Now, the original mansion was demolished back in 1971, mainly because it was nearly 100 years old, and it wasn't suitable for children, and it would have taken so much money to transform it. It made more sense to demolish that and build a purpose-built children's home. It's got a new block. So John had been involved in supporting it financially as well, and Yoko continues to do that um, after John had died as well. Um, But the children's home itself closed back in 2005, mainly because the the change in social care is better for the children to be in foster families or to be uh, adopted. But there are plans been talked about for a while to reopen it and hopefully with um, some form of a Beatles visitor attraction or something to wow. Beatles fans there as well. Well, well, you know, we talked about Strawberry Fields, but let's talk about the flip side, Penny Lane. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, if you go on the tour, there really is the you know, shelter in the middle of the roundabout and all of the things that Paul discusses in the song, but we talked about the Beatles leaving and and not being forgiven for that. 
But in 1967, this comes out and, you know... Did, Spotlight did, back on Liverpool. Sp- exactly. So did Liverpool sort of say, oh, okay, he's giving us a little bit of a nod, a, more, more than a little bit, uh, a big nod in this song and maybe embrace the Beatles at least for then, for that moment with that song? I mean, it did go number one here and it didn't number go number two here. Yeah, exactly. So, so was there a feeling more of a little better feeling for the Beatles when Penny Lane came out? Um, I don't think at the time there was any bad feeling towards the Beatles. There was sadness sort of in 63 when you know, they played the last time at the Cavern and they sort of they'd moved down to London. There was sadness, but I don't think they needed to be forgiven. It was all sort of after they'd, they'd broken up and Liverpool was going through a really tough time economically. It was sort of, well, the Beatles were the 60s, yeah, that was lovely, but we've got to deal with them now. So I don't think there was was a feeling of of any need to be forgiven. But it was nice when they brought it out. You know, those two great songs. And again, the cleverness was, if you don't understand, not just Liverpool, if you don't understand Walton where Strawberry Fields is, and particularly you don't understand the Penny Lane area, the song makes no sense. You have to be here to fully understand it. And I was fortunate when I was researching for the book, I was going through Paul's reminiscences and he was sort of sparked into writing that because John had started in my life and had started making a list of places he remembered. And Paul was going through and then I spoke to a former pupil of Dovedale who was at school with John Lennon and he said, I know who the pretty nurse is. Really? Mm. Said, okay. Isn't that on page 258 of your book? Uh, <laughs> hey! <laughs> and, and that's it. So for the first time ever, I put down the full explanation for what the song means because that verse about um, Behind the Shelter in the Middle of the Roundabout was written by John, was not written by Paul. Oh, wow. wow. But John, but... He, he first lived in Newcastle Road, which is literally 100 yards from the Penny Lane Roundabout, within what we call the Penny Lane area. So he could say most of his first five years were spent in Penny Lane. John, George and Paul, when they're saying it, Penny Lane's in their ears and their eyes, what they're saying is this was our childhood. Sure. Yeah. It's a very, very personal song which virtually nobody understood. But finger pies are universal. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, for the, that's for the late show. David, it's been a while since the book's come out. Has anything come up since you've written the book that you wish you could have put in the book or maybe you put in a, a newer edition, the paperback edition? Has anything come up that someone came up to you and said, oh, by the way, I, I had this? Has anything like that come that, up? That, that happens all the time. I know. Because um, like, Liverpool came out in 2009. As a hardback that sold out. Then we did a, a softback edition in 2011. The hardback weighs about a stone, which is like about <laughs> 14 pounds in America. Yeah. It's a, it's a well, someone said to me, it's a good coffee table book. I said, well, put four legs on it. It's a coffee table. <laughs> it literally could be. But it's well worth it because it costs Absolutely. less than a coffee table, you by bet. the way. <laughs> yeah, so the, the hardback sold out. Uh, the softback is just sold out as well. So the publisher doesn't want to do a third print. Why? Um, so I'm, I'm working on a guidebook version of it at the moment. So and I've, since then, I've got about another 30 places to add into it of significance in and around Liverpool. 
while I was learning synth Liddy Pro, both editions, a lot of that went into the Fab 104. Oh, okay. That makes I was able sense. to update that. And then anything then you find from the Fab 104 that you hear subsequently, because I've narrowed down onto the drummers, get into the looking for the fourth Beatle. What about the idea, David, seriously, a, a book like this and a guidebook, and especially because of the places, the people, how about an app? I mean, that would be absolutely unbelievable for a book like Liddy Pool. There's so much there, and there's so much that wouldn't be able to be there with an app. Yeah, but, I'm trying to work know. on something to, to bring us into the 21st century to get it dead modern. I'm trying to work on, on something in the new book that be, would be more interactive. Doing an app, there's, there's so many places, it, it would just it would cost an absolute fortune to try and put together, to do everywhere. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But I, I'm trying to work on something which will be a compromise between the two. Cool. So, yeah, I'm just an organization. Yeah. people at the moment. That's great. Just something ancillary to the book that would, would really, that's, that would be great. Yeah. So. So, exactly. so let me ask you a question, David. You know, when I went again in 96, I stayed at the Hotel Campanile uh, on the Al yep. Albert Dock, and yep. I found that actually it was more modern than any hotel I stayed in in London at that time, even 20 years ago. So let me ask you this. The, we, you know, we've just seen this report about 82 million pounds that the Beatles bring in to yep. Liverpool, and Liverpool is a very welcoming and warming city, but has the popularity now of the Beatles and the modernization of Liverpool, uh, meaning the Hard Day's Night Hotel, all, all the the Beatle-related modernization. The tourism. The tourism, correct. Yeah. Beatle yeah. story, something like that. Well, yeah, but yes, but more, the Beatle story was always there, but now it seems that they're making the tourism something to welcome, I guess, people to come. But has it been like a double-edged sword? Has Liverpool lost a little bit of its warmth because it's being bombarded by the tourism, which is also now helping to support that city? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's, it's made Liverpool as a city sit up and realize that we had to get our act together to make sure that everybody was welcome. And one of the big things, of course, is now for the last couple of years, we've got a new cruise terminal. So we've got the, the cruise ships sailing into the Mersey, and it's, it's one of the few major cities you can go to where you, you literally get off the cruise ship right at the pier head, and within five minutes you're in the city of Liverpool. But not the Titanic, right? <laughs> no, that, that didn't go down too well. Oh! Oh, oh my Lord, he is one of us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I did hear that they're going to make it Titanic for 2019, uh, starting a, another ship. ship. Yeah. Is that wow. going to be coming out of Liverpool again? Or? Well, the, the one thing we can say is it was built in Belfast, and it sailed from Southampton, but it, it was registered in Liverpool with the White Star Line. Okay. Hey. okay. The one thing that comes to mind, David, was that... Um, a friend of mine who uh, visited a number of times over the over the years, he had, a, he had a line that I sort of varied a little bit, and he said, the thing about Liverpool is you may go for the Beatles, but you stay and you come back for the city and the people. Absolutely. And, and I, that's what I, I've heard so many times, is that because Beatles fans, they come here, and they have, most of them have a preconceived idea of what they expect. 
to be in Liverpool and are stunned at how beautiful the city is. We've, we've got the, the most historic number of buildings outside of London. You know, this is a beautiful, beautiful city. Some of the architecture is amazing. We've got the fifth largest cathedral in the world wow. in the, the Anglican Cathedral. We've got a second cathedral, Catholic one as well. So we've got so much here. We've got museums, which are free, art galleries. You know, we've got restaurants of every, every type you can think of. We've got a fantastic Chinatown. We've got the oldest established right. Chinese community in Europe. That's right. We're based in Liverpool. So that's what happens is, and quite often the, the people who go to London and do a day trip to Liverpool and back again wish they'd spent more time in Liverpool. Yeah. David, yeah. Um, when I met you in Liverpool and you took me around to a couple of places that are off the tour, so to speak. Off the Beetle Path. Yeah, off the, off the Beetle Path. <laughs> are there a couple of places that you think should be on that tour or on that path that are overlooked in Liverpool? Well, of course, the problem is that when you do something like the Magical Mystery Tour... Right, I mean, they hit all the, the important things. You drive by, you drive by John's house, and you, uh, we, you go to uh, where George lived, which is literally the size of this room. It's really tiny. Because uh, they can see the size of this room. Yes, yes well, this room, we're in a small little pro- right. production room. Uh, you go to uh, where Paul grew up, and that's part of it. On the Magical Mystery Tour, you're not allowed to go in those places. You have to get special sign-up permission. Is there anything you think should be added or that you think is important to the history of, of Liverpool with the Beatles? For the actual Magical Mystery Tour route, it's been so cleverly planned to fit so much into two hours. It, it's incredible, but of course, when you do something that is only two hours, right. you I, don't I, have I understood time to that. explore. And that's why I decided with Liverpool to do the guidebook, because you're only going through three or four different suburbs, and you've got a, a whole other history going out places like the Casbah, right up to the north end of Liverpool, so you've got places like Latham Hall, and particularly uh, Liverland Town Hall, yeah. which is really what we, yeah. we regard as the birth of Beatlemania on the 27th of December 1960, when the Beatles had come back from Hamburg and got themselves together. They played that night, and nobody had ever seen or heard anything like them. So Little Town Hall is, is a, such an important place, but because it's so far out, it's difficult to get to unless you do a private Beatles tour with, with your own tour guide, and there's, there's lots of them around. And even like going across the Mersey to the Wirral, you know, the Wirral Peninsula, there's lots of important places over there, including Hume Hall, where Ringo made his debut with, with the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of amazing places. Uh, you, know, you could spend... I, I planned an itinerary for two mad Beatles fans from Britain, and they were retiring and wanted to do everything, and I planned a whole week for them. Wow. Well, a week? Yeah, they're coming back to do the rest soon. Wow. <laughs> well, speaking of week, what is it like over there for Beatle Week uh, for you guys? I mean, I, I know it's a lot of drinking, which I, I, time for that. I, I have to come <laughs> down there and do that. But what is it like over there? I know, you know you've seen the fest. You've been to the fest. It's three days. But this is actually Beatle Week. What is it like there? It's, it's insane. You know, when you come over to the fest or Abbey Road on the river, you know, you're in a location that's in space around a hotel. Beatle Week in Liverpool is based around the city centre. 
Wow. So you've got bands and things going on in 30 or 40 different locations in and around the city centre. And what we do at the, the fest, we only do for one day in Liverpool at the Adelphi Hotel, where you'll have you know, interviews and you have all the different uh, authors and vendors there. That only happens in one place just for one day in Beatle Week. Right. Uh, I think there are just thousands and thousands of Beatles fans come from all over the world. Hmm. To, to stay in Liverpool and literally the city centre gets invaded and taken over by Beatles fans it's it's unbelievable there's, there's nowhere else like it it's crazy we've yet to do it I we would love I, I think we would love it I mean you know we always talk about coming over to London you know, no, again no offence to Liverpool but to maybe do some shows from Abbey Road Obviously, yeah. we, you know, we've got to get permission, and uh, to this point, we have not gotten permission, you know, not because they don't like us, but because there's obviously financial... It's a working studio. It's yeah. a working studio. But if we had an insider in Liverpool who could help us to get some locations scouted in Liverpool <laughs> that we could do shows from... Well, you know what? Boy, wouldn't that be great? Why? why I don't Nudge, do... nudge, I'll, I'll, wink. I'll have a thing to see if I know anybody. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you know, we could actually do some shows from the cavern. Well, the cat spot would actually be better. Yeah. But that and doesn't mean we couldn't do yeah, both, right? And and, and uh, Penny Lane, there's all kinds of places. Yeah. W- one yeah. thing when when the I was pub. On, the, on the tour <laughs> with David, uh, yeah, I spent two days with David. I was only there for thirty hours, but I saw him for two over two days. And every place we went to with David, everyone was like, "David, how well, you doing? Like, how yeah. you doing?" <laughs> and I said, "You're like the mayor of Liverpool." Yes. And yeah. and then the thing that got me, which I thought was very cool, I don't know who the tour guide was. You would probably remember David. But when you walked away from it, he goes, yeah, we just used David's book. <laughs> and that's very And I'm funny. like, it's a good book, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, and, and, and one thing that I thought was very cool, not just on the history tour, but, you know, if someone gets something wrong on the tour guide, you don't want to say correct them, but you know what? Everyone knew the facts. Sure. There was no mix, sure. mixing up of rumor or anything like that. Right. It was, it was basically, they said everything stuck to the facts. So I was very impressed with that. Because sometimes people add a couple of lines. But there are too many people yeah. to catch you over yes, there. Yes, many, yes, yes. You know, it's, that's, it's that's not like thing. here in New York where really uh, half the people don't know half the story of right. the, the, the <laughs> truth behind the city. Over there, when you have historians, you have David, you yeah. have Mark, you have... They're not going to, you know, if you don't know your facts, somebody sitting yeah. on that tour is going to catch you up. Yeah, you they, know? Were, they were pretty good. So, um, so David... Um, we know you have a book coming out. We'll see it at the Fest in 2016, a couple of months from when we're taping right now. If people want to get in contact with you, well, what's your best way of getting in contact with? Well, the best thing to do for now is um, go on the website for the current book, the Fab 104. Uh, the website is dead simple. It's just fab104.com. Okay. And is there a Liddypool uh, website, or was there? Yeah, liddypool.com. And there's email links in there, so... And they okay. can drop me a line, ask me a question. That's cool. So we look and, forward, and I'll make something up. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. That's it. Look, David. That's what we've been we've been doing this for seven years now. We just keep making stuff up. Believe me, we do. We, we do it well. So, David, <laughs> thanks. Public opinion. That, that's brilliant. Well done, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I, I want to thank you for joining us on the Fab Four Free for All. Finally, we get you on. Yeah, buy the book, people, because you know we yeah. didn't even touch on. I we mean, there's no. five what five hundred yeah. pages in the book or more. I don't it's know. A, it's a really a magnificent and, piece and of work. Quite three hundred thirty-three. Page. And there's a yeah. lot of pictures that no one's seen, and it's just a, a fabulous book, and I think 
you know, Beatle fans who listen to our show always want to go to Liverpool. And I think if you do, you need this book. I think you also need to look David up because I'm sure you enjoy talking with fans. But the the book is absolutely David, are you doing any uh, personal tours? Or uh, you talked about uh, making like a planner. Do you do personal tours? Can people... Uh, Yeah, yeah, can do. Yeah, every now and again. Um, Sometimes the guys on the Magical Mystery Tour ask me to step in on that, which which is a lot of fun. Yeah, you can do personal tours as well. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, David. We'll see. Finally, finally, we yeah. get you on. Let's do it live next time, man. Yeah, and uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> oh, that was supposed to be a joke at me. What? No, no, no. no I remember no. I said live. We're having it here live, and I'm, I've, I've made fun. No, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just saying oh, okay. next time let's, round, let's, well, let's do, do something do live yeah. in Liverpool. In, in Liverpool. Yeah. In Liverpool. We we will have to work on that. We've been talking with uh, David Bedford. He is the author of Liverpool, birthplace of the Beatles. And we highly recommend the book about what to do and what to see in Liverpool. And there's lots of maps and ideas. And, and the history, and too. And the history the of history. the Beatles and Liverpool and Liverpool itself. And you, you learn a little bit. You look at the Beatles and you see Liverpool and you say, okay, you see why. It, it goes right back to the beginning yeah. of David's conversation. Yeah. Why they are forever intertwined. If, if the Beatles were from no London, I'm not sure they come They'd out. They'd sound funny. They'd sound funny, yeah. and, they, and, and maybe they're not as funny. Right. You know, they, right. they had a great sense of humor. So, David, thanks for joining us. Uh, I've been your moderator for today, Rob Leonard, and joining me, of course, is my friend. Mitch Axelrod. Mitch Axelrod. Yeah, who, Mick Axelrod? Mick. That's your new nickname. Yeah, yeah Mick. Oh, Mick Axelrod. Mick Axelrod. And, of course, Tony Trubano. Not a bit like Cagney. Yes. <laughs> thanks, Thank you, David. Thanks, thanks David. We'll talk to you sometime soon, we hope. Tell Liverpool that the Fab Four Free for All loves them so we don't get banned. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome anytime, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. Fab Four Free for All was edited and produced by Tony Triguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free-For-All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free-For-All. Sorry. Everyone sounds like Peter Noon. You know that if you break up Noon, it's actually no one. (laughs) That's true. Well, did you know um, I had a nickname for a number of years from a work colleague who called me Herman? Because I look like Peter Noon. You do sound like Peter Noon. It it has been said. Is Peter Liverpudlian, though? No, Peter's Mancurian, isn't he? Manchester. Uh, No, no, he he was uh, Liverpudlian, uh, but he spent a lot of time in Manchester. He's he's still got some Liverpool in there. (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to make a Davy Jones joke, but I can't. (laughs) Peter Noon, he still has a little Manchester in him. Very nice. Sorry, I I, I can't. (laughs) I'm sorry. The Mancurian. I'm not going there. (laughs) <laughs> no monkeying around, please. Nice. Oh. All right, so what we're what, one of us. What we're gonna have to do, one we, like us. we didn't know. One that. of us. One of us. Um. <laughs> By the way, uh, one more thing before we start. It's it's Everton, not Liverpool, right? It's Liverpool, not Everton. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, wow, Rob. Rob, you, not, you, uh, football. Uh, what is that? Oh, wait, no, no. Yeah, he no, is. But it's it's Islanders, Rangers, but much worse. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. But but. But Rob is across the pond, so he can say that. It's all right. I'm I'm Watford all the way. Just, I will see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's for me. It's just an Elton joke, you know. But anyway. <laughs>
All right. Okay, you ready? Ready? And why don't we just talk about Rod Stewart and his football club? <laughs> Very come nice. on. I mean, come Very on. Good. Tottenham. Oh, right. my God. All right, go ahead. Robert. Premier League. No, someone has to say welcome to. Oh, all right. Well, we can edit that in. We well, can edit that in? Uh, yes, do it right shh. Welcome to the Fab Four Free for All. And welcome to. No, start it again. Wait a you, what you've are done you this doing? for five, five years. years. You haven't done a show on, on it. A month or two months now. But, All right. but that means you forgot everything? I forgot everything. Oh my right. God. You have to work with the Three Stooges. Basically, yeah. Uh, yes. <coughs> I'm curly because right. I'm bald. Nice. All right, ready? Okay. Wait, no, wait, wait. Rob's drinking. Well, no, just leave the welcome to Again. Well done. Okay, Robert, go ahead. He's got a problem with that. We do. Yes, he does. How's it going so far, David? Going great. Well, I'm ready to record whenever you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang on. We're going to come back. Uh, you know what? We're going to go, uh, you know, a little bit back in time because I do want to uh, talk about some stuff and then talk about, you know, a bunch of other stuff. So we'll get into it. And so we're talking about stuff. You really stuff. You just spent like 40 seconds saying we're going to talk about stuff. You know, you know what? <laughs> Um, um, David, how do you say s- in Liverpool? How do you stuff say it. stuff it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Two fingers. There you go. That's what you Shut your go. All right. So ready? Okay. And it's All two right. fingers, not one, Axelrod. Whoa. <laughs> two. Well, it depends. You know. Very nice. Depends on how you yeah, hold them. Right. Because two, two fingers to kill. One, two one, one's one's peace, and one's right. <laughs> you know. Hey, how you doing? Don't confuse them. Uh, please don't. I, I always watch the pictures of Ringo doing it just in. Casey's, you know, looking at me because I know he's going to do it. He's going to flip his fingers and then say no, no autographs, you know. <laughs> All right, hang on. Peace and love, peace and love. Well, please, very God good. help me though. He sounded like Ringo. He really he, did. Actually, so now he's okay. Ringo and Peter New. I could do all, all the Mersey beats if you want. Can you cool. do Billy J. Kramer? Can you, can you do Rory Storm? It's the stutter. I was about to say only if there's a hurricane, but... Make sure we oh. cut that out. <laughs> Why do we have to cut that out? Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe we, no, we do not. That's an Actually, outtake. That's an outtake. Okay. Everyone I'm sorry, knew we have... Rory stuttered. Right. I mean, it, we, it, he it, did stutter. Come good. on. Okay, leave it. Leave it. What, you, who <laughs> okay. are you going to offend? I don't know. Me. You know one of the funniest things with, with, uh, with Rory and his stutter? Uh, and he used to joke about it. He used to have fun with it. And... Um, I interviewed a sister, Iris, and she said the only way he could lose his stutter, apart from singing, was if you put an American accent on. Really? Oh, if, funny. Yeah, if you put an American accent on, he wouldn't stutter. That is wow. so odd. I don't but know if this. But like, to do that, he'd, he'd sooner have his stutter and his Liverpool accent. Wow. Wow. That, that's how well, now, I'm you guys are. now I'm offended. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not buying any more Rory Storm CDs. Here we go. And I'm not buying any more newspapers that he's involved with. Or any books that mention... Oh, wait. No, we can't do that. No, we can't. <laughs> throw away this one. As a matter of fact, we're going to buy your book just to throw it away. multiple copies just to burn them. throw them away. I need to do one every day, so just buy them all. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's a new sales campaign. I haven't thought of that. Hey, we're good. we could do sales campaigns too. Well, yeah, yeah. Just, just say the, just say Liverpool was bigger than Jesus, and you and, get like and, all the and all of us here will buy them and just burn them, and, and it'll be the best thing that we'll ever send happened. Send them down here. south. They'll buy more down there. Yeah, down south, really. Yeah. Okay, let's, hang right. on, hang on. We're gonna come back. Hold on.